welcome to episode 467 of the Cyber Law Podcast, where lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views that are not shared by our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, or even our pets, although my pets are not in evidence this week. Uh, joining me from the News Roundup, Megan Stiffel, who is the Chief Strategy Officer for the Institute for Security and Technology and was formerly with NSD at the Department of Justice, Paul Rosenzweig, founder of Red Branch Consulting and formerly with the Department of Homeland Security, with me actually, and Sultan Meiji, scholar at the Cyber Policy Initiative at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and an adjunct associate professor at Duke University's School of Engineering. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and probably the chief provocateur for today. Let's jump into this week in AI, because we've been doing a lot of that. Sultan, there was a lot of kind of miscellaneous AI stories. I'll let you pick the ones that you think are the most interesting. I mean, that's that's a tough one, Stuart. You know, I think the the probably the biggest one is that OpenAI is creating a, a new team internally to prevent super intelligent AIs from going rogue, which seems mostly engineered at placating certain members of Congress and less about actually doing any sort of technology change because at the same time they did that, they provided general release of their latest AI model to everyone in the world. So, you know, the left hand and the right hand might not necessarily be talking to each other. Well, maybe they don't think they've gotten to super intelligence yet, uh, which is probably true. I I, I don't even think we've gotten to basic intelligence. I will not repeat the same thing I've said probably 30 or 40 times on this show that when we talk about AI, we're actually talking about marketing. We're not actually talking about actual intelligence. We're talking about, you know, slightly fancy Python scripts. Yeah. So I, I was interested in the story about the ways in which the spread of this kind of weirdly plausible but also weirdly balky text is going to end up undermining the entire model that says if we use a large enough language model, we ought to be able to get some very good stuff because they're going to be basically recycling their their own waste and gradually it will fill up the models with the garbage that was that that the last model generated well it's a you know ai is not different than any other technology garbage in garbage out and the current generation and, and recent generations of generative ai in particular these large language models what comes out of them and we've seen it in hallucinations where it invents citations we've seen a bunch of the garbage come out of it and if you use that as part of the training for the next version you are going to have challenges and i think this is probably one of the most interesting problems right now we've in ai for 30 years if you let models train on the outputs of themselves, they always go pear-shaped very quickly. And so LLMs are not too dissimilar. It is just kind of interesting that uh, so many of the people doing a lot of this LLM work don't have significant AI backgrounds and don't understand that that's kind of just the nature of these kinds of technologies. There will be limits to how much we will get out of the current generation of LLMs. I will be very curious to see if GPT-5, as an example, is significantly better than GPT-4 in terms of the language model. It'll definitely be more interesting in terms of how it hooks into other things, you know, how it APIs into other parts of the internet, for example. But, you know, that's a that's a conversation for six to nine months from now. Yeah, I, it seems to me that the pressure to, to, to be up to date 
which is very real, right? Uh, ChatGPT didn't know anything that happened after 2021, I think. On the one hand, people will want to know, well, what happened in 2022 and 2023? But as soon as you start putting that data in, you are, you're eating your own seed, seed corn or, you know, yeah. drinking your own waste because you're gradually filling up with stuff that is full of hallucinations. Yeah. And not only that, you know, they have a second significant issue coming, which is now that they've made it generally available and you have, you know, hundreds of millions of people using it, the data that those hundreds of millions of people are throwing into the system, you know, they're going to have a heck of a job curating that because up until now, they've had fairly rigorous structures for data going into their training models where it's yeah. been open AI employees who have very specific things they're trying to accomplish. Okay. Here's how we handle verbs, for example. And now all of a sudden it's, you know, how can I write, you know, my term paper or how can I write my website content or how can I create a social media strategy, all of which are things that don't require, you know, IQs over about 70. Yeah. So I kind of think of when people are dating bones, the one thing they look at is strontium 90 levels because fallout from nuclear testing in the fifties has produced a permanent change in people's bones. And so you can see whether they are pre or post fallout. It turns out that probably 2021 or 2020 is going to be an equally important year for measuring whether this is content you really can trust or whether it's content you have to be careful about adding into your, your system. Absolutely. You know, I think, I think there is a very interesting line in the sand kind of in the middle of 2021 where you start to see generated content radically increase. And since we don't have a lot of visibility as to provenance of a lot of that, I think your point, Stuart, is dead on. I think about kind of June of 2021, anything after that, I'd, I'd want to run it through a system to check it for LLMs and influencing and hallucinations and things like that before trying to throw it into anything else. You said that models, you know, when they eat their own output, you know, generally tend to go pear-shaped. The one kind of counterexample that I'm sort of familiar with is adversarial networks for, for developing like pictures, fake, fake faces and all that. Is there any prospect of running like adversarial LLMs against each other so that we would actually contest the pear-shaped trend and, and maybe drive towards a like, slightly better solution? Or is that, or am I making an analogy that doesn't work? The, the short answer is it's, it doesn't quite work that way, is how I'll say it, Paul. The, the way to think about it is, you know, we're at a moment where LLMs are really just individual models, right? I have a model for the English language, for example. I might have a different model. And it does have to absorb data that comes out of that and other models. And so, you know, for the first two full, two and a half generations of LLMs, it was human-generated content exclusively. But in order to scale it, in order for that intelligence to move up, they actually had to start feeding in a broader set of data, something more accurate to what's actually out there. We are going to see probably the thing that solves the question when you talk about that adversarial, kind of having multiple LLMs working together, take a step back, I would say you, we're going to end up in a situation where you're going to have swarms of artificial intelligence systems all pushing against each other and pulling to get to net results that people actually want. So you'll have an LLM that's, for example, very good at reading chemistry papers that interfaces with an LLM that's very good at reading English, that's very good at another one that understands how to read tables. And you end up having a model that will end up looking far more similar to how the human brain currently works in terms of different categories of neural neurons playing together in certain ways for specific purposes. 
So no longer general use, but more specific use. And in that case, we hopefully will get through this hallucination issue and some of the dog food issues that Stuart talked about fairly quickly. But that's still probably two to four years out. Yeah. And it sounds like what, what, what you're saying is large language models are great. They produced a, a big step forward. We can't assume that they're going to get better and better and better. We're going to have to do other no, stuff. They, they will absolutely plateau and it's very possible. And that was probably the most interesting thing about that article that, that I think I hope more people kind of took away from it was that we might already be seeing the plateauing. Yeah just in time for all the regulators to arrive and shoot the wounded. Okay, so speaking of which, New York City has begun regulating artificial intelligence, if you use it in the hiring process at all, and it has disparate impacts on protected classes, you must disclose the disparate impact. And I guarantee you, the day you disclose that disparate impact is the day you can begin the countdown to being sued because any disparate impact that is more than kind of an 80% differential from whatever the appropriate base measure is, you're going to get sued over and you're probably going to lose because you'll have to show that using AI is essential for your business. And you're not going to be able to show that because you're not going to be able to show why the AI achieved the results that it did. We are in an absolutely fascinating moment because every single HR services firm and every single hiring technology platform to one degree or another uses machine learning in it already just to operate. And so there is going to be a wrath of new terms of services getting published. There's going to be a wrath of these new activities. And I think the only people who are really going to, to win out of this are the law firms that are going to get hired on both sides when these lawsuits start happening, because they're absolutely not, going to not start that happening. there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> I, I'm, I actually think this is a great business opportunity. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yes. I, I, and, and, you know, my advice usually is it's, it's a pretty good business model to be a lawyer it's an even better business model to be the expert that the lawyer relies on. So, Sultan, I, your future is bright. Uh, Stuart, as always, I take all of your job advice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's see. Anything else? Liar's dividend. You know, there's an Indian politician who's being attacked by the BJP because he's, he's running a state and they, they believe they should run all the states in India. They produced a few snippets, maybe 30 seconds or a minute of him saying things that are politically damaging. And his response has been, this is all fake. This is all the sound equivalent of Photoshop. And it looks as though the experts are actually having a little trouble figuring out whether he's right or not. So, I, you know, the liar's dividend is potentially quite real now. Oh, absolutely. The deepfake technology has gotten incredibly good. I was deepfaked a few months ago to show for a pretty terrible crypto project. And if you put up, you know, the audio that they based it on and the audio that they did, they really just changed four words. Wow. Of a, of a three-minute three speech I gave when I was a government official, which makes it even more exciting. And it, it really changed what I said. But, you know, if you just listen to 94% or whatever they said of the, of the audio recording, it is just my voice, not edited or anything. So I guess I'm not surprised to see this story at all. I'm also kind of, I think everybody should just buckle up because we're going to see a lot of that kind of stuff. So let me ask you about IP, copyright law, and AI. 
I have always thought that that was just the people with copyrights trying to extract some monopoly rent that they're not really due by saying, whoa, you, you read my stuff and relied on it. And I always thought copyright, it was fair use to read stuff and rely on mm-hmm. it and summarize it and write things in the same style as the author. So I, I just don't understand where the copyright claims are coming from. And maybe they're just completely bogus, but being lofted on a a sea of PR. But am I kind of underestimating the value of the IP claims that, that are being made against AI companies? Well, let me break that into a couple of pieces. So first off, there is a there is a kind of a technical IP question, which is the vast majority of AI systems out there that people are using to build all their sexy AI on right now is a combination of, of private code and public code through open source. The problem is, is a number of organizations are saying that they are open source and using certain, you know, licenses, you know, the Apache license or GPL or something like that. But if you get into the fine print, you hear that, you know, rights are reserved and we hold everything in perpetuity and dot, dot, dot. And so there is definitely a, a set of act- actors out there that are putting things out there, trying to get people to adopt them as they build these AI companies so that they can come back and sue them. Okay, so that's not the training data. That's that's the code itself. And this is a longstanding fight. Microsoft had it with open various free software models in which if you incorporate it, you have to give away the rest of your code. And that, that problem is real. And we've more or less learned to live with it. Yeah. The other side of it, though, is is kind of an interesting issue that shows a big gap in the in the IP legal landscape right now. Like, let's just say I decided, Stuart, to make a joke meme of you talking about your pets, right? Is that your voice? Do you get to own it? Do you get to sue me for using it? Where does fair use land in this discussion? You know, the the using the technology and then the IP side downstream of that is, is kind of a characteristically different discussion and one that we don't have a reasonable solution to, you know, the everything from Paul McCartney using John Lennon's voice to record a new Beatles song, which one could argue he's probably got some authority there because of being a Beatle. But there are far other spectrums there. And, and this new campaign season, you know, that's about to hit us is, is going to be rife with this. And and there's not going to be a legal solution in advance of that. I, I, I guess people have been doing imitations of other famous people since people got famous, right? And no one thought you had a right to sue somebody who could successfully sound like you. So I don't see that. Maybe if you try to pretend you're somebody by imitating their voice, you could be sued for fraud. Well, um, here's, a, here's a great example. We've already seen it in campaign ads where there have been fake pictures put out there, yeah. right? What happens if somebody does a very good job of getting a video of a of a current politician or a someone running for office and you know gets them you know sets it up where they say something very negative or something like that and has leveraged all the digital technology and social media to to get a very broad spectrum around it think about the that fake picture of the pentagon on fire from a month or two ago right you know we're in a situation where that kind of stuff can fly across the internet very quickly and and you know thinking about it just from a cyber perspective so many of the nation state adversaries to the united states have and developed most of these technologies and so their their ability to weaponize this 
to just be disruptive. Yeah, I, I, look, we're the- going to have that problem. I, I don't see how law is going to solve it. And uh, there's nobody who's going to bring that lawsuit. Maybe maybe the candidate would bring a lawsuit saying you're misrepresenting yourself as me or you're, you've, you've yeah. libeled me. And those things are all valid claims. But to say you can't actually train your IP, train your model on my words, which is what most of these claims are, right? The photographers and yeah. uh, now the yeah. authors saying, we think you trained your uh, your model on our words. I just don't see how that's possibly a, a valid claim. I think it's going to come down to use, frankly. You know, if you take one of our voices and put it on a Twitter space, okay, great. Nobody's going to get too wound up about it. You know, we all speak publicly. Our voices are on podcasts and TV and all this stuff, right? I think it becomes what you do with it becomes the bigger concern, right? You know, are you using it to break into someone's bank account? Are you doing it to, you know, influence a political event, you know, things like that, that, that to me is where, where the line ends up coming. And, you know, you know, I think about Keanu Reeves actually. So this is, this is a funny story. So Keanu Reeves was one of the first actors ever to put restrictions in his contracts for people digitally altering his performance or taking that and doing anything with his performance. So everything he's done for 20 years, you just can't do anything with, right? Unless he specifically gives approval. Is that something we're going to have to build into our universe and the disclaimers on this podcast, you know, no, you know, you know, can you imagine if you add that we don't only not represent our pets, but that any organization, individual or technology may not use anything in this podcast for training AI models. I think first off, that would be hilarious for you to do, but I, you know, that might be where we're going with this just to create at least a, a soft boundary for that kind of behavior. Yeah. Fair point. And we've, we've done nothing about the intellectual property of this show, probably because the idea that it has intellectual content oh, yeah. and property value struck me as implausible, but there it is. Uh, all right. Uh, there's, I, the, let, there's, the joke, there's the joke for the day, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, Megan, this was a there was a really interesting and potentially big deal injunction issued by Judge Dowdy out of the Louisiana, I think, and he he wrote 150 pages about how aggressively the federal government had leaned on social media companies to take down vast swaths of material that they said were disinformation, misinformation, malinformation, politically inconvenient, whatever. And he basically said they could have taken it all down if they were doing it on their own, but they were doing it under an element of coercion, mainly by the Biden administration, not exclusively. And he said, and you you can't do that. And so I'm just going to enjoin the federal government or big chunks of it from communicating their displeasure about various social media postings to the big platforms. Yeah. And so I I know you're not going to restrain your interventions, Stuart, to that brief introduction, because I know this is one of your hobby horses. It is indeed. (laughs) I'm about to turn the mic back over to you because I think you're going to have far more to say about this than I will. But yes, I think it is a particularly troubling development and and just procedurally right the the attorneys general of i think missouri and louisiana brought this um brought this they filed in the western district of louisiana and as you noted i think oral arguments were heard in may as you noted this temporary preliminary injunction was issued on july 4th which i have to note i think was naughty by the judge um, because you know that people are then scrambling to race into the Department of Justice and race into the White House Counsel's office to figure out what the hell to do about this in addition to CISA and, and all the other named defendants in the suit. So it could be. Um, although if he had done it on the 3rd, it would have been 
more work. I think he did it on the fourth for symbolic reasons. Yes. I mean, the whole thing is just naughty. And I also, can I just make a point about, I noticed the description of efficiency versus efficacy. Did anyone else pick up on this perhaps improper use of terms? So one of the, one of the concerns is that the, anyways, that's my new show. So initially the judge decides that, that the, the scope of the injunction that the plaintiff sought was too broad. So he narrows the the scope a tad bit, but I think most are concerned that it's still quite broad and it will be quite difficult for the government to determine when it is and is not crossing this line that has been issued. And, you know, among the, the news stories that you flagged is, is that's been made public that I think a meeting at the State Department was canceled last week. I think, too, you know, it, there is this breathing room in the, in the injunction for the government to continue to talk about criminal activity, national security risks, and the like. And in theory, that's what they were speaking about. So I'm glad I'm not trying to, to thread this needle right now because it, it is particularly troubling. And, and yes, you, you noted, I think, one of the things I find also peculiar, which is to say that, that it's sort of suggested this only began when the Biden administration came into, not totally, but I don't think we can draw the line at 2020 or 2019. I think we need to go back. And, and there has been, I think, I know when I was in the government, we were very careful. But, but I think there was far less dialogue when I was in the government about these types of concerns. So the government has appealed. I think the appeal was filed on Wednesday and we'll have to see kind of where where things go. I think there's it's pretty clear that the judge did not follow precedent in most of this. But I don't know that that's so over, clear. Over I to you for your, for your hobby horse. Oh, it's 100% clear, Stuart. Don't even Thank try you, and defend Thank it. you. For one thing, he... No, no. For one thing, he ignored the standing decisions of the Supreme Court that just came out, which says that the attorney generals of Louisiana and Missouri don't have standing to bring this claim. Period. Full stop. End of story. There's no way in heck that any legitimate application of those things gives these guys standing. I, I, That's the I, first I, I, I didn't look at that. And, and, and I, I don't even I, need I'll, to go to the I'll, first I'm willing to, to, to accept that possibility. There were plenty of other... Well, then that, that, no, that's the game. There were games kinds of other. This is this is nothing. No, no. These for these suits. That's the ball game. This is nothing more than a politicized rant of a bunch of conservative ags who don't like the fact that we're not allowing them to talk about the benefits of hydrochloroquine. You know, it's really nonsense on stilts. Secondly, I mean. I read the entire 150 pages. Did you say on stilts? You show me. Did you say on stilts? Well, well, nonsense. It was. It's like no pun intended. I mean, you show me what the coercion is. Oh, you show me what the actual coercion is. No threats to withhold money. No threats to do anything. It's it's mal mowing, right? Just as you mal mow. Megan and me here, if that's coercion, then you are just as guilty of coercion as but, President Biden. But I'm not Biden. the state, I, I would point out. and, and But, but the, the state is free, it's to, free speak. to speak. It's not free I, uh, to, in this context to be saying, you know, we ought to be rethinking your 230 immunity. And maybe and you're killing people. They didn't you're, say you, that, you, you Facebook are killing people. You know, the president of the United States said that. They were. Well, they, they, you know, truth is an absolute defense. Hydrochloroquine killed people, period. Full stop. End of story. I, I'm know? sorry. I, I, to people to say that, that that's not coercive is just wrong. You might say, oh, I think it's fair. No, it isn't coercive, Stuart. To speak the truth is not coercive. The entire theory of free speech is that truth is not a coercive element. To say that Stuart Baker is bald is not a coercive <laughs> statement. It's a true statement. So I, I com 
completely reject that view. They, it, I know you do, but you don't have any sense of what's right. No, re- re- realistically, <laughs> this this was coercive. This was designed to get, and the reason the Biden administration is taking the flack for this is that they were much more aggressive about pursuing this at a very high level. And they said it over and over again, starting within a day or two of arriving in the White House, because they were determined to use all of their authority to do things that had not been done by the last administration, and particularly things that turned out to be politically convenient for them. Naming people that they wanted to see kicked off of social media, and then demanding reports on how good a job, how quickly the social platforms had danced to their tune. There is no doubt that this was coercive. You might say, well, maybe it's not the kind of coercion that we should recognize in law, but threat of... and It isn't the kind of coercion that's ever before been recognized in law, Stuart. I mean, you know, if you want to change the law of coercion, sorry, you can, that, that, but then every time the state speaks, it's coercing there are, somebody. There are, there are cases about if, trying to persuade that where governments have been trying to get certain books withheld from the public, and they've leaned on bookstores not to display them or to sh- sell them. And the court said, yeah, well, you, you might say you were just telling them you thought this was a really bad idea, but given the differential in power, we all know what the next step would have been if they have not bowed to your will. So I, the idea that this is not coercive is you're ignoring the reality. I don't think that the social media platforms felt they had a choice to refuse to listen to the government, to answer their calls. They didn't have to take everything that the government was suggesting, but they were clearly giving them preferential and strongly sympathetic hearings. To my mind, this is exactly what the social media platforms and the government deserve after the really remarkably bad job that was done with respect to health information, where, you know, three quarters of the things that were shut down as misinformation have turned out to be plausibly true or true. And we just had to learn to say, oh, yeah, well, the CDC thought that then, but now they think something different. And the idea that you know the CDC changes its mind and stuff just can disappear from the internet or come back to the internet is nuts. And so having created a, a situation, a, a censorship engine like this, and then handed it to a government, it's exactly what you'd expect to get. Social media platforms created a censorship system and then handed it to the government by saying, well, you, of course, are are the guardians of what's true. And then not surprisingly, the government said, well, we're the guardians of what's true. We're also going to find that things that are inconvenient are not true. I would love for this to be a separate podcast episode. With and can we can I like pick who joins? Not me because I'm not the expert, as I've already demonstrated. But I would love to hear Paul and David, Chris, and why not spice it up a little? Put Jamil in the conversation too. Yeah, and and I'm sure you will get lots of listeners. No, no. If we're going to do this, let's get Danielle Citrone and other people yes. who actually the actual understand experts. that. 
Content moderation is not censorship. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to call it censorship. No, it isn't. No, no, it isn't censorship. You're going to tell me it's because you're going to tell me that the government doesn't. The government does censorship, and when I'm censored by Facebook, it's not really censorship. Yeah, okay, I I understand. Stuart Baker doesn't invite people on he doesn't like. He's censoring. You know, he's never invited the other Jamil. Or maybe he has. I don't know. But but you're a censor. Yes, at, at some level. Obviously, we all make choices about who we want to uh, have. But, yes, but, but, exactly. They're a private company. They're allowed to make choices. Allowed? That is, but they are, they are doing it on such an industrial scale as not to be comparable to deciding there are some people we want in our magazine and some people we don't. This is just, we're just suppressing your speech. We're not letting you speak. That's what's going on with a lot of this content moderation. And if you would rather, I said, if you hand a a, a speech suppression engine to the government, you're going to get exactly what we got in the last three years. I'm happy to say that. But it is censorship in anything but the most technical sense. (laughs) I'm still confused about how it was handed to the government, but but I, we probably don't by, have time by, to get into by that. Deferring, no. by, defer, by letting the government create an entire bureaucracy, or actually multiple bureaucracies, designed to find things they didn't like and to flag them with a heavy element of coercion to the social media platforms. So the government should abandon its responsibilities to provide... For public safety and those yeah, types you know, of things. I, I, what would you, the, what would you rather the government there, there, there of course might be yeah, – it is not unreasonable for the government to say we should be able to tell people what we think is true and not true, especially about things like public health emergencies. But that is quite different from saying – and we should also go around telling them who to suppress – because it's very clear, they stepped off that slippery slope and they slid right into the mud at the bottom. They were just picking people whose messages were inconvenient and demanding that they be taken down over and over and over again, particularly because they were people whose views were plausible and had some support in the credentials of the speakers. That's the stuff that really got the government's goat. And they were relentless in pursuing uh, the people who they most feared. And I, you know, that's just government doing what government does. But before we say, oh, yeah, well, that's fine. We ought to think hard about whether we want to have this kind of censorship by proxy, if if you will. And I think I, I think the judge got this exact right, and I'm really pleased that he did it. You know, I was absolutely expecting that. I just want to put in a personal a personal vote of support for the professionals whom I know personally who are named in this thing, because it's not, you know, they're not out there saying what you suspect. So, anyway. I, look, I, I yeah. do know, I understand. Look, I, a lot of these people are, are my friends, too. Several of them have been on the podcast. And I understand there was a lot of good faith effort to combat misinformation. But it did not stay that way. And it inevitably turned out to be suppression of the most inconvenient speech and ignoring the speech that wasn't inconvenient. And so I just, I I do think that if you're going to figure out where do we want to draw the line, I think you can draw the line at saying the government can say what it wants, but it can't go around saying, and don't let anybody who contradicts us on your platform when that platform controls what all of us are saying to each other. 
Okay, that was fun. <laughs> you find the people who want to argue this. We've we've had several of mine. I'm not the host. You're times. the host. Hmm? <laughs> I'm oh. not the host. You're the host. Okay, fine. You should encourage them to come on. I have sensed a certain reluctance to to engage on these issues with me. Uh, I can't uh, imagine why. After that, how long was that? Nine minutes. Yeah. Well, do you think that I suppressed Paul's speech? I thought I did, did a pretty good job no. of, of letting him letting him rant. No, they, they won't engage with you, Stuart, for the same reason they don't engage with Robert Kennedy Jr. Okay, because they don't think I'm persuadable or they don't think they can win the fight. They don't think it's worth giving their the, their credence yes. to okay. a prank. Well, that, that's exactly right. They, they don't want to acknowledge that there's a, another side of this issue and that this is a harder issue because it's such a comfortable thing. You know, all of us liberals know exactly what was done wrong on the, the fight against COVID-19. We all know that any suggestions there could possibly be electoral fraud in voting by mail is just a voter suppression conspiracy. So people who don't believe that, really, we shouldn't even listen to them, let alone talk to them. All right, let's talk decoupling. Paul, the Chinese have started to find tools to strike back at the West in the fight over chips. I was not impressed, but it shows they're clearly looking for weapons. I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I would say that we are now at a point where the movement to decouple or maybe de-risk, if you want to choose that term, is China is, is realizing that it is a strategic challenge to it, to, to decrease Western dependence on China. And, and so they're playing the tool with the tools that they have to maintain the dependency, the, and it's a codependency, I think that's fair to say, but to maintain the dependency. They picked, for example, to limit the export of gallium and germanium, which are minerals that they have great sources, resources for that are essential for chip making. And they, you know, Brussels is kind of like, whoa, we, we didn't realize that they were going to fight back. The Taiwanese have said that they don't see an impact of that on their production. So as you suggested, maybe that's a, a weak tool, but I think it's probably just the first salvo. That's what they're saying. Yeah. In a Chinese yeah, a Chinese effort to make make the West's continuing partial dependence on China evident and heighten the costs of de-risking. Now, whether they can heighten it enough, yeah, I don't I'm, know. I'm, I, but it's a really interesting I, it, step. It is, and it's you know, it's very fact bound. But I'm seeing the same thing that you're seeing that that these are not resources that China really controls, although they have a very large share of the market. And by saying we're going to license them, that suggests that they're going to play favorites. But it means that everybody who now is relying on Chinese germanium and gallium is looking for an alternative source of supply. So they are creating the very market that they don't want to see because it undermines their leverage here. And so one of my favorite things out of this that I that I that I just read like yesterday and I didn't get a chance to share it with you is that for literally 20 years there's been the prospect of doing deep sea mining of mineral nodules on the ocean bed floor. And it has never come to fruition, mostly because it's economically 
too costly. And one of the first responses I saw to the Chinese threats to limit germanium and gallium and presumably other mineral resources was a revival. So yeah, a bunch of myths, ah, maybe now we should do the deep sea mining thing that we've been thinking about for the last 20 years, because all of a sudden the prices are going to inflate sufficiently that it will be economically profitable. Guaranteed, this is a cost to the consumer yeah. at some level. But I, I, if, if, but, if um, you only have to have probably 30% of the market of the supply outside of China to make a strategy like China's fail, especially if you've got the ability to ramp that capability up. So I do think that China is really hurting itself by rolling out these little bite-sized attacks uh, that show that they're quite willing, if they have the leverage, not to sell us stuff. And that leads us to say, well, there really should be nothing that we have to have from China because if we have to have it, they'll take it away when they want to squeeze us. So yeah, I think this is, this is inevitable that China is doing this. They can't stop, but they're hurting themselves, I suspect. Okay, Megan, speaking of hurting themselves, maybe they're coming to an end to the pain. China has been cracking down on its the financial tech industry, Tencent and Ant. And according to the stories, they may have come to the end of kicking those companies around. Yes. So I, I was going to make the joke about cool summer, but it's not actually applicable to this particular set of news stories. It's the later ones that we're going to get to, but we might run out of time. So um, in any event, yes, our it does appear that three years, so I guess it's like since late 2020, and I should actually like let Sultan cover this because this is far far further up his line of expertise than mine, so he should weigh in. But the central bank issued a couple of fines recently. I think it was last, late last week or the week before. Yeah, late last week. So Tenpei is going to be paying $410 million, so that's 2.99 yuan and Ant, which is the fintech affiliate of Alibaba, will be paying a million, almost a billion dollar fine. The alleged illegal activities were corporate governance, consumer protection, banking and insurance, payments and settlements, and failing to comply with AML requirements. So apparently, much to my chagrin, but probably perhaps not not saying anyone on this podcast, but others in the world, the markets reacted resoundingly happily to this this outcome, and because the stock of these two companies is up, yeah. which I don't find, I don't take comfort in, cold comfort. So, but I, yes, I think that there there has been a kind of a, a chilling effect on investments with these folks, and and many the market included, it appears, think that the these fines signifies that this. The cruel winter is over. Yeah, but still, they, you know, a three-year winter. I just remember how how high those fintech companies were riding, and how much people expected them to take over the global market. And they they've lost three years, and just so the Chinese government could could make a point that you can't stand up in a big public meeting in China and make fun of them. So I, it's sad. But again, it's. The Chinese government doing what the Chinese government feels it has to do, and it's hurting its economy and therefore its competitiveness. And so you kind of say, well, go right ahead, China. It's it's your economy to break, and you're doing a great job. Speaking of which, breaking things, CZ over at Binance is breaking Binance bad. The Sultan, they've, they've lost... 
practically everybody, it looks like, who would have had credibility with the SEC and the Justice Department about the good things that they are doing, the legitimate compliance-oriented things that they're doing. Does this mean they've just given up on trying to achieve compliance and they're worrying only about making as much money as they can for their criminal defense? Well, it's interesting you frame it like that because, you know, certainly it seems like Binance has given up on the United States and obviously they haven't had necessarily a huge presence in the United States and they have two fundamental sense of challenges with the United States. The first is from the financial regulators, the SEC and the CFTC. And given the Biden administration's anti-crypto regime, there's just no way for it. It doesn't matter how much they decide to do. They just won't get across the finish line. You know, we, we've seen that already with, with organizations that are fundamentally trying to do the right thing, getting the, the same cold shoulder, you know, as Coinbase lawsuits, et cetera, et cetera. The second thing is these ongoing national security and, and investigations out of the DOJ. You know, everything from terrorist financing to, you know, money laundering, et cetera, et cetera. You know, there, there are rumors now that Afghan poppy is being paid for on Binance's stable coin out of Dubai and, you know, a bunch of other stuff like that. So, you know, Binance is in a tough position. At some point, you know, DOJ charges will be announced you know, maybe under indictment that's sealed already. Who knows on that one? But, you know, the Binance has no place to operate in the United States. And so what that means is people who are kind of credible with the United States have no, they don't need them anymore, right? They're in bed with the government in Dubai. They're in bed with, you know, the Russian and Chinese governments, you know, they are just going to play in that universe and, you know, wait a few years and see if a Republican ends up in the White House and if things evolve and then maybe they'll come back. But most likely not. I mean, I think if you're an American citizen, you're touching Binance, you know, be prepared to be audited by the IRS for a while. And uh, if you uh, if you're if you're going to do something in crypto in the United States and you want to stay on the good side of the regulators, wait for some of these institutional crypto offerings from places like Fidelity and BlackRock to be offered, you know, through your through your local, you know, facts based, you know, financial services entity and, you know, move, move on for a while. Did you say facts based? Like yeah, FAX. I'm, I'm making a der- Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm making yeah, a, yeah, a derogatory yeah. comment to the state of the American no, no, I, I thought so, and I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I've never heard that. I, I mean, funny. you know, given that half the people that I interacted with, you know, when I was a financial regulator, didn't know how to change the ringtone on their iPhone, I feel like this is a, a fax is an appropriate level of technology for most of those guys. Wait, you can change the ringtone on your phone? <laughs> oh, man, Stuart. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah, so I do think this is interesting because I feel like I know a lot of people who went into cryptocurrency from a regulatory point of view, you know, people with good reputations in Washington who thought they could find a way to navigate this and who have just been crushed between the demands of the industry and the growing hostility of the U.S. government. There's a, there's a whole bunch of careers that at a minimum have been stalled for four years that are going to have to be revived as a result of this. And I can't help feeling a little bit bad for them, but only a little bit, I guess. You should get Gus Coldbellow You know, on. Gus has offered to come on and we will, we will bring him on. I keep saying, well, we should bring him on when we know that there's going to be a crypto story. And this story, Sultan was the one who really said we should talk about it. And we didn't have a chance to 
invite him on because we'd already set up the panel. But absolutely, he wants to be the guy who is the devil's advocate for, for crypto. And I'd love to have him. Well, I mean, having a deeper conversation about the evolving state of crypto would be really interesting because there's a big swing from retail to institutional, right? You yeah. obviously see this as becoming an election year discussion as well, obviously, right? With some of the states actually trying to, you know, in essence, violate what the Supreme Court has already said, which is to create their own currencies, which is kind of fascinating. There's just a lot more to this story. And certainly between the regulatory activities, the national security activities, and the fact that this this is pushing the United States' financial system farther and farther away from state of the art and, you know, farther and farther back on mainframes and, and other pieces of legacy technology is a big deal. And then we've got Fed now coming, which is probably going to break a bunch of banks and, and kill some more of the community banking ecosystem. You know, this is this is all intertwined. I, I will mimic Megan, who had a great idea, which is to call for a special podcast on the state of financial regulation, cryptocurrency, and America's dominance globally in the financial sector. Okay, it's a, it's a deal. You know, hopefully you'll you'll be willing to help organize that. Uh, and I'm sorry, we'll I'm sorry you broke up on uh, you broke up on me, Stuart. I can't hear. Yeah, you. so I'm hoping you'll be willing to help us organize that. I'm. No, I'm happy I, I still can't. It. I still can't hear you, Stuart. I'm sorry. I still can't hear you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So it's it's a pleasure to have Sultan agree to organize that. Uh, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. all right. Okay. So before we finish up, there's two or three things we ought to cover. There's a bill that is aiming at going on the National Defense Authorization Act. So if it gets on, it has a good chance of passing, designed to say that American government and intelligence agencies can't buy Americans' private data without a warrant. That means that the GRU could get it without a warrant, but the U.S. couldn't. That strikes me as weird, but it's got you know a, a left-right coalition of the usual suspects plus some, so maybe it has a shot. Paul, do you think that this actually is going to go someplace? I sure, sure hope not. I mean, I think it's, it is part of a growing unease that is perceived on the left and right edges with law enforcement as it's normally practiced, as you and I practice it for many years, Stuart. It strikes me as equally implausible that data that is purchasable by everybody else in the world, you know, not, I mean, you said the GRU, but leave that aside. The, you know, Deutsches Telekom, the uh, Gabonese Tourist Authority, the Australian Mining Corporation, everybody in the world can buy this except the U.S. government. Because what? I, I don't know. We're more afraid of the U.S. government than we are of the Chinese government. It makes little practical sense. It's really essentially a different flavor of re-erecting the wall between you know, law enforcement and, and intelligence that bedeviled us at 9-11. It, it seems like we have, we're unlearning the lessons that we've learned. My guess is that it doesn't get on because there's still a, a convicted centrist group of both yep. sides, you know, from Cornyn to Cain sort of thing that sees this as the nonsense that it is. But that's yeah. just a guess. Sultan, you want to? Nobody's going to. Nobody's going to veto the NDAA over right, this. But it'll be hard to get on. on because it'll be. It'll make the NDAA a lot more controversial. Yeah, right. I mean, I mean, at some point, we're going to have to take a step back from these kind of tactical discussions and, and ask, you know, fundamental questions about, you know, American citizens' data privacy. And it's, you know, at some point, we're going to have to do that, but it doesn't seem like it's going to happen. I can't imagine this actually getting into the NDAA, but you know, that's you know, my nickel's worth of free advice. 
All right, three or four quick hits. The US-EU privacy fight had two or three pretty big developments, uh, one of which I'll cover, Megan, because it's unfair to ask you because it happened this morning. We have a data privacy framework agreement. The European Union has declared that the United States is adequate and the U.S. has said, well, you're adequate too, so we'll let your nationals bring lawsuits against the U.S. government to find out whether their rights were violated. So that is launched a lot of the efforts to impose sanctions on Facebook and others will now fail until Yet a third round of litigation goes to the uh, Court of Justice in the European Union, where I'd say odds are at best 50-50 for the survival of the data privacy framework. The cases that are going to fall, Megan, you were going to cover those. It was an interesting one in which the Court of Justice showed just how much they have it in for the U.S. companies collecting data by saying, hey, you can, if you're an antitrust authority, you can yell at Meta and impose sanctions because of their collection of data. It was a pretty unrelenting decision. Yes, this is where the cruel summer comment comes back to say this decision that you're referring to was was last week, and then obviously the adequacy decision was, as you noted, this morning. the The idea that that the federal cartel office initiated back, I guess it was in 2019, was the idea that privacy harm could result from exploitative competition by the collection of of data and the, and the pooling of data, and now allowing uh, competition authorities to factor data protection into their antitrust assessments. Things you just said. So as as one of the articles that you flagged notes, it is a very bitter pill, I think, for the folks over at Meta. And you know, the, the broader point for us, I think, the watchers of these issues, and I agree. You know, we've seen this story before. It will likely the adequacy decision will likely be litigated again at some point. You know, friends, I think, already noted that he was working on his latest and greatest suit. Is how much of this is actually about competitiveness? And the, you know, unfortunately, the strong position, or fortunately, the strong position of many U.S. tech companies vis-a-vis those in, out of Europe. Um, and, and would they actually really rather that this information not be transmitted? Because, you know, if you're trying to play catch up, it's a little harder to play catch up if you're cutting off half of the data that you might be leveraging to, to boost or sort of grow some, some homegrown or deepen some homegrown innovation, excuse me. So, yeah, uh, I, I don't think at the end of the day, they think that loosening their data protection boycott on the United States will help their industry. Although it, it is interesting, Meta has come out with a Twitter killer called Threads, and they've gotten 100 million signups. It's very impressive performance in less than a week. But Threads apparently is not going to be offered in, in Europe, at least not right away, precisely because Meta isn't sure that it can survive the data protection scrutiny that is inevitable for a a social media platform that Meta puts forward. So we might not see a Twitter killer in Europe, but we're certainly going to see bitter competition from Meta trying to knock off Twitter. And, And this is the one competitor that I think has a shot to really do damage to Twitter. So it'll be fascinating to see. And then finally, just to bring you up to speed, Canada has responded to the fact that Facebook and Google have said they're not going to link to any Canadian news stories because of Canada's new law by saying, well, then fine, we won't put our ads on Facebook or Instagram. Interestingly, Canada said, we think that Google will eventually 
come around and negotiate a good deal with us. So they are still holding out hope that their law won't turn out to be completely counterproductive. It will be interesting to see. So more on that to come. All right, Paul, Megan, Sultan, thanks for joining us. I do want to share a review that we got from one of our listeners who is Bobo the Circus Clown, so a particularly esteemed listener. The title is Love This, Five Stars, Great for Cybersecurity Professionals. So thank you, Bobo the Circus Clown. Your endorsement means a lot to us. And if you'd like to have your review you read on the podcast, you got to leave one because we do watch for them. This has been episode 467 of the Cyber Law Podcast. Mau, mau.